So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 10th chapter, verses 17 to 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Father, you know of my consistent prayer from the very first of considering this passage right through to this moment is that you would give me the words, that you would give me the words to articulate the extraordinary image that is before us, the meaning of the words that you have stated, the relevance that it is to each and every one of us, to the kingdom, to the church, to every single Christian of how we contend with the evil that is around us and how you have laid out for us the solution for that. I just pray that you would give me the words towards that end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I want to start out by telling you something that you already know. That is that we live in a world that is filled with evil. It's rotten to the core. We live in a world that is uh, overwhelmed with wickedness. And people ask me all the time, what are we supposed to do about this? Surely Jesus is coming back soon. (laughs) Because it can't get any more wicked than it is now. Well, if you begin to look back into history, you start realizing that people have always felt that way. I can remember 60 years ago when I was an eight-year-old boy, my grandmother telling me, she, she grew up in pioneer um, environments, and she telling me, I, don't, I just don't see how the world can last much longer. Jesus has got to be on his way back because it is so wicked. I mean, decency, civility has just completely gone out the window. Well, about 20 years later, 40 years ago, when we moved to South Florida, I can remember my mother, who was living in Tennessee, telling me the same thing. How on earth can you live in such a wicked place like that? Jesus has got to be coming home soon. Now, of course, she lived in a place where everyone went to church on Sunday. The whole town shut down, at least in the old days, not the way it is anymore. But I can honestly tell you as I stand before you this morning that neither my grandmother nor my mother had any conception of how wicked this society could become. And so I find myself saying and thinking the exact same things that they thought. Jesus has got to come home soon or or to, to come back because how can we get any more wicked than we are? I never dreamed that people would talk about it being a good thing, a positive thing, that only a million babies were murdered in the womb this year rather than the 1.5 million that they were used to, that we would kill so many babies and that we would actually call it choice. I never dreamed that marriage would be redefined, no longer between one man and one woman for life, but between two men, two women, two whatever. And that children would be given to them to be raised. 
I never dreamed that I would distrust the basic institutions of this land that I live in to the degree that I now distrust them. I never dreamed in my wildest imagination that preschool children would be given the option of choosing which gender they are. I never dreamed that government agencies or schools or social clubs that actually call themselves churches would have story times for children read by transvestites. I mean, I can go on and on. We look around us and we see evil at every single turn. How can it get worse? And how are we as Christians supposed to deal with such blatant evil? Well, then, if, if, if you start going back through history, like I just did with my mother, my grandmother, but if you even go back farther than that, you find that people have always made these statements. You go back and you read the stories or the, or the sermons of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he talked many times about how wicked society had become. You go back to the two world wars and the world of Hitler, six million Jews killed. The world of Stalin, over 10 million. Sometimes people think it's 50 million Christians and others killed. In that regime, the, the, the so-called cultural revolution of Mao Zedong, where over a million people killed in just literally a matter of months or years. No, wickedness has been with us a long time. You go back and you look at the, at the sermons of Charles Spurgeon at the end of the 19th century, and he talked about wickedness. Go back farther than that to the 1700s and the, the sermons of George Whitfield. He also lamented the way that decency and morality had fallen apart. Even the 1600s, John Bunyan. You go back even farther than that to Luther, Calvin, Middle Ages where people are being burned at the stake for their beliefs. The writings of St. Augustine in the 5th century. And let's at least take a look at it in the Bible itself. The wickedness of the Roman and Greek culture. Where they actually were burning Christians at the stake and turning them loose in coliseums to be ripped apart by animals. While the crowd roared in approval. That's just unmitigated evil. So we've always had to deal with evil, but the burning question is this. How do we as Christians, how does the church of Jesus Christ confront the evil that we are thrust into? And it brings up a great paradox that I'm going to deal with this morning. And the paradox is simply this. Jesus has sent us out into this field like sheep in the midst of ravenous wolves. He's left us as his bride in this sewer. He has sent us out into the darkness where there is evil to confront the evil. Not to remain in our ivory towers. Not to form a bubble around us. But to be out in that world but not of that world. So how do we do that and still find peace and hope and joy? Well, Jesus is going to tell us how to do it. He's going to tell us how to live in the presence of evil. How to trample evil and how to do it with joy. That's a tall order, folks, but that's what our text is going to bring out this morning. 
Now, this is the aftermath. Jesus has sent out 72 disciples in our text. He's ex- told them what to do. He's prepared them. He, he's he's uh, given them their traveling orders, told them where to stay, how to stay, what to share, what their ministry is, and, and they have gone out, and, and they have spread that news around. Now, in order to prepare them for what he is de- telling them to do, Two metaphors or two analogies uh, uh, kind of are overshadowing the whole thing. I've already mentioned them, but they're also going to become important this morning. And that is that Jesus, first of all, said that this world, this field, is like a gigantic field of grain, and it's ripe for harvest. The big problem is that we need more laborers. So pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into His field. I want to emphasize that. This is his field. These are his kernels, his grain, his harvest. And so therefore, not one single kernel will be lost. But he makes it clear. I'm sending you out in danger. Life-threatening danger. I'm sending you out like a bunch of lambs in the midst of ravenous wolves. But I'm sending you in such a way that you would be totally and completely dependent on me knowing where your strength comes from. He even told them how to deal with those who received the message and how to deal with those who didn't receive the message. And he's just finished talking about the terrible judgment that will come upon those who do not receive the message of peace and think that they can find their way to God on their own. Well, now in our text, as we get started this morning, the 72 have returned. And they're going to tell their story, and I believe that this is one of the greatest passages that we will find where Jesus unveils the battle battle plan of the kingdom, but at the same time, the spiritual warfare that goes on behind it. So let's jump right into it and see what is being said here. Look in the 17th verse. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, the first thing that we learn is that they're joyful when they come back. And I just want to make a point. Uh, Jesus is going to make a very strong point down in the 20th verse that real joy, true joy, is not in this earth. It is not of this earth. That nothing that we actually do on this earth is where our joy resides. It's in heaven because our names are listed there. That's the ultimate joy. But we see these disciples joyful. And I, I think the reason that they're joyful is two reasons. One, they have noticed that the powers of evil are subject to them. We're going to talk about what that means. But secondly, they have obediently listened to and carried out the instructions of their Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is joy in the service of the Lord. There is joy in obedience to the Lord. I think that's one of the great pillars of what true joy is. You're not going to be joyful in the Lord if you're being disobedient to the Lord or if you're ignoring His calling and you're not in His service when He has called you to do that. When you're ignoring certain things and picking and choosing what you will like to do and what you won't like to do, you're not going to find the joy of the Lord that you're going to find if you're totally subjected to Him, totally submissive. And you go out and you do the work of the Lord and come back. They came back and they are happy. They are joyful because they have, um, they, they have seen the, the demons subject to their work. Now, 
I don't believe they expected this. That one of the reasons for the joy. And if we go back to when Jesus gave them their commission in the ninth verse, this is what we read. He says to them, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So he doesn't commission them as he did his apostles to cast out demons. So we're going to ask ourselves, in what way are these demons subject to them? But the, um, they, they, they apparently were surprised that the evil was subject to him. And I bet you the demons were surprised as well. So as, as, as we go into this, let's ask ourselves the question, first of all, well, who are these demons that are subject to it? Because that's going to be kind of the focus, how we deal with evil. And the demonic world is the world of evil. So who are they and how many of them are they and what kind of power do they possess? Well, I think most of you know that they're fallen angels. That at some point in time, Satan, the prince of this kingdom of darkness, led a group of angels into a revolt against God. Satan wants to be God. So he led other angels. Now, I had really actually thought about spending a lot more time studying Revelation 12 because that's where we see this graphic picture of it. But I'm just going to refer back to it in the after church. I think that we'll read the whole chapter and try to put that into perspective because it really maps out everything that is going on here. But this is what we read in the uh, starting in the third verse. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. That's talking about Satan in very apocalyptic language. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And most scholars that I read uh, see that as the as the the, the rebellion against God and a third of the host of heaven followed Satan in that rebellion and fell with him. So how many is that? How many is a third of the angels? We don't know. We're not told. But we are told in Revelation that the angels, there are a whole bunch of them. Okay, from the fifth chapter, this is what John sees. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Those are both Hebraisms. They're Hebrew figure of speech, figures of speech. And, and they're designed to say an uncountable number, an innumerable throng. You could not count or see the end. You know, if they were on earth, the earth would curve before you would see the end of all the angels gathered around the throne of God. These are the good angels. Therefore, if you take a third uh, of the ones that originally were there, well, you've got a whole bunch of demons. You've got a very large demonic presence in the world around us. Now, there's one thing about demons that you may not consider. We know that they're fallen. We know that they're evil. We know that they're nefarious. That they enjoy doing bad things. But perhaps you haven't considered the fact that these fallen angels are also unredeemable. Meaning that their situation is completely different than ours. Because we're redeemable. No matter how egregious your sin is. No matter how you have sinned against God. No matter how blasphemies you have committed. There's only one unforgivable sin. We read it last week. I'll read it again from Matthew 12. I will read it again. Therefore I tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. 
Now, the reason that we are redeemable is because we have a redeemer. God took on the attributes of a human so that he could live a perfect life, so that he could atone for our sins, and so that he could impute his righteousness to us so that we can stand in the presence of a holy God. There is no such redeemer for angels that we know of. They're unredeemable. It's, Jesus was a human, and he was God in the flesh, but he's also human. His redemption is for humans and, and not for angels. So in other words, there is nothing that awaits these angels but the pit of fire, damnation, and torture. As Revelation points out, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus himself talked about this lake of fire when he said of those who would not accept his, his, his offer of peace. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's all that awaits these angels. So that twists them, that, that makes them embittered, that, that, that turns their, their spirits into something of, of, of the most malevolent type of, of, of a spirit. Because there's nothing that awaits them. I think that's why they were so terrified of Jesus. Remember in Matthew, or we saw it in Luke too, where the gathering demoniac, garrison demoniac in Luke, where when they, they, they were confronted with Jesus, they said, you know, what have you come to do? What do we have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? If you come to torment us before the time, they know that's their destination. They know that they have no place, no redemption. And so therefore, they are evil from start to finish, through and through, wicked completely. And that is the group. That is the force, the power that these men came back Oh, so excited and said, they are subject to us. So in what way are they subject? Now, I'm just going to ask the question. I'm not going to answer it right now. But the question is simply this. Were they sent out to exorcise demons? Were they sent out with the power to cast demons out as Jesus had given to his apostles? And if he did, or is there another way that is much more relevant to the church today, that they exercise the power and authority over all the power of the enemy. Well, as I said, I'm not going to answer that right now. We will get to that in a moment because I want to take a look at this 18th verse. This 18th verse, I think, is one of the most profound revelations of the spiritual world that circles around us and the spiritual warfare that goes on that world, in that world that we have. So let's read it. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, if you've been here for this study, you know that we have talked about sort of turning a corner, crossing a threshold in Luke. And the threshold that we've crossed is that Jesus, back in the ninth chapter of the 51st verse, Jesus has turned his face towards Jerusalem. 
Now he is headed towards his departure. Not just his crucifixion, but definitely that looms large. But his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coronation as king of kings and lord of lords. That's what he has turned his face towards now. So that threshold has been crossed. But at the same time that that threshold has been crossed, it seems that a spiritual threshold has also been crossed. Because what we are going to see is an intensity, a a growing animosity of the religious leaders against Jesus and somewhat of an intensification of the the way that, that evil is fighting against them. Almost as if Satan is recognizing That he's on the defensive now. Now, I don't know that Luke actually intended this, but this this is kind of reflected in just his choice of words. Up until this point in his gospel, every time he is referred to the enemy, to the evil one, he has used the Greek word diabolos. We call it the devil. And all through the temptations and other times, every time he's referred to Satan, it has been as the devil. Now, that's a Greek word, as I said, that means accuser. It it means oppressor, slanderer, the one who would tempt Jesus, hoping to draw a wedge between Jesus and his father so that he could rush to the father and say, look what your son did. He's the accuser. And, and, And that's the way that Luke has presented him until now. But from this point on to the rest of his gospel, you will not see the word devil. You'll see the word Satan, Satan, the the Hebrew word. And it has a different meaning. Satan in Hebrew means adversary, enemy, the one who opposes every single aspect of the kingdom of heaven. And so we see the intensification of spiritual warfare as even Luke, again, whether it's intentional or not, just in the words that he uses from this point on, Satan is on the defensive. He is going to fight tooth and nail because the kingdom of heaven has invaded his kingdom of darkness. That's what Jesus says next when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, most people, when they read that, they immediately uh, associate that with the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Satan, as it is given to us in Isaiah. How are you fallen? And again, this is not definitively about Lucifer, but it's usually considered to be so. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? And, and so they see this and they say, well, Jesus is just simply reciting or seeing that fall of Satan. But that doesn't fit the context, does it? The context before us is Jesus has sent out 72 evangelists. We call them apostles here, sent ones, not the apostles, but ones that Jesus has sent into his field for the harvest, into the midst of wolves, by the way. But he has sent them out, and then he says, they come back and say, you're not going to believe what happened. the, The very demons were subject to us. And Jesus says, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Now, this is one of those places where grammar really is important because... Actually, there's several places in this passage where grammar is important. 
Because usually, even though this is an accurate translation in the ESV, usually when we consider the word saw, we think of something that occurred in the past. And in that case, we're thinking about a single event, say Satan being cast out of heaven down to earth. And certainly we'll read that in the 12th chapter of Revelation as well. But that's, it's not a simple past tense, you see. The, the, the word is, is in an imperfect tense. And when you have an imperfect tense, it, it doesn't mean something that started and finished in the past. It means something that started in the past but is still ongoing in the present and you have every indication that it will consider to the future. That's why the New American Standard translates this, Jesus saying, and I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Not just one lightning bolt, but many. Oh, brothers and sisters, what an image. Please give me your imagination just for a moment. You've all seen lightning, electrical storms, haven't you? Thunder clouds come across the landscape at night. And you watch as the lightning bolts, one after another, come down out of that cloud. And for an instant, they light up the sky. But before that one is completely gone, another one comes down. And it's just the most awesome display. Well, I believe that's what Jesus is seeing. Jesus is seeing not, not Satan uh, come down by himself, but he is seeing the, 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 the erosion, the crumbling, the disillusion the solution of Satan's kingdom as soul after soul after soul is released from the darkness and flashes like lightning out of that dark and ominous kingdom to never return to it. One soul after the other being redeemed, being set free by those who have dared to go into the darkness filled with wolves to take the message of peace. This isn't the way the world sees it, folks. The way the world sees what happened... The way the 72 might have seen it is two very unassuming men walking into a little village. They, they come and they find a house to stay in, perhaps not the best house in town, not the best fare, sort of on the edge of town. They spend an awful lot of time with that family. But then they perhaps go out into the marketplace. They have a message and they're talking about the Messiah being there. Some people listen to them and some people don't. And then they leave. And that's the extent of it. That's the extent of what the, what the world sees. Now, maybe there's a little bit of a change in the people that they talk to. Maybe those who seem to listen to the message, they have a little bit more peace and some kind of an inexplicable joy. But there was no fanfare. There were no trumpets being sound, no parades, no excitement. It was just simply a very nonchalant. They came into town, they did some talking, and they left. But that's not the way Jesus sees it. You see, because he's looking at the spiritual world. What Jesus sees is soul after soul, like lightning bolts coming out of the kingdom of darkness, hitting the ground in every place that bolt hits the ground. There is a seed of light that is planted. I have many times used the analogy of the way the kingdom grows. 
And trying to get you to, uh, to re- just in your mind's eye, f- come look at the world as a whole and try to see the entire world at this time. There is one little bitty spiny speck of light in Palestine. And then the rest of the world belongs to the devil, belongs to Satan. It's in darkness. And that light of the gospel is going to spread over the face of that globe from one end to the other to where every single kernel of corn or of wheat in that vast wheat field is going to be harvested. The Lord's not going to lose one of them. Now I want you to look at it as if Jesus starts a thunderstorm there in Palestine. And that storm just starts to grow and grow and grow and everywhere it goes those who are trapped in the kingdom of darkness and guarded by the wolves of demonic and satanic nature are set free and they like lightning bolts come flying out of the sky and you know what happens when there's a lightning bolt don't you from far off you start to hear a rumble and it grows closer And closer and closer until finally you hear this clap and this power that literally shakes the foundations of the building that you are in. That's what Jesus sees. All of heaven erupts when one soul is saved. Can you imagine when the the troops go out into the field and they start coming back one after another and you start seeing the souls that are saved and every time that happens, there is an eternal celebration. That's huge. That's what's going on here, folks. That's what these men are a part of. That's what you're a part of. Two people in this church, they get in their cars, they go visit someone and they tell them about Jesus Christ and they leave and come back and that's the end of it, they think. No, it's not. Because all of heaven erupts when one soul is stolen, as Jude said, like a brand taken out of the fire. That's what we're seeing. So Jesus sees it different than the rest of us do. He goes on in the 19th and says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, whenever Jesus starts a sentence with the word behold, it's time for you to wake up, get out of your doldrums, pay attention to what he's saying, because he's saying, look, I want you to see this. So he tells his disciples that come back, look, I want you to see something. I have given you authority. I want you to notice that. Notice, first of all, that it is Jesus who has given. That is in a perfect tense. That is something that has happened in the past. And when it happens in the past, it's over. So this is not something that would be temporary. Now, I think that there were some temporary power given to these, these disciples to go out and heal. And, and apparently, if they were doing exorcisms to be able to exorcise demons, but I'm not really sure that's what they were doing. I'm not sure that's the power that they held over these demonic forces. Because Jesus says, I'm the one who gave it to you. And when I give it to you, it's permanent. This is something that the church still has today. The ability to have authority over the power of the evil one. But Calvin points something out here, and I think it's very important. The the emphasis here is on the I. In other words, Jesus is not just not saying, I've given you authority. He's saying, I have given you authority. Don't forget where your authority comes from, folks. 
Don't forget where your power is from. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves for one reason and one reason only. You go out against those wolves on your own power, you're toast. Your lunch, they will have you completely. But you go out with my power, nothing can stand against you. So he's making it clear, I'm the one who has given you authority. Notice that he gives them authority and not power. The power follows, the power was implied. The authority is the right to wield the power. Jesus is ordaining that his disciples will be the one to go into the darkness with the light and share it with those in darkness. A search and rescue mission to find the lamb surrounded by wolves and to bring them back into the fold. Using his power and not our own. That's the authority that he has given to the church. He goes on and says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. I don't believe we should take that literally. I don't think he means actually for us to go out and stomp on the heads of snakes, but that ought to bring a a, a, a reference to your mind, Genesis 3.15, because that's what Jesus did. He stomped on the head of that serpent. There are some people like the where we go up to Kentucky, and if they believe it or not, they still have those those people who dance around with rattlesnakes, um, thinking that that's what they're doing. Here, I have authority over the snake. Well, just recently, one bit one of those guys, and he died. <laughs> that, that's that's not exactly what Jesus meant. What he's talking about. This is another um, metaphor for the demonic world. It's another metaphor for evil. Just like those ravenous wolves. I give you authority to tread on evil to the demons. No matter how powerful they are, the power that you wield is even greater. It's a divine power. It's a power that only comes from the Lord. Now, there's something that we need to recognize. Look at the next thing that he says. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. This is incredible. All the power of evil, all the power of the enemy. I'm giving these 72 men, remember these are not his 12 apostles, these are 72 disciples that he is sending out, and I am giving you authority that is more powerful than anything that these powerful demons have to offer. So just how powerful are they? Well, if you look through scripture, you, you, you realize that whenever anyone sees an angel that they fall down on their face and tremble in fear. They have the power to destroy cities, just one of them. This is, this is un, untapped, un, unmitigated power. And, and, and if good angels have power, then evil angels also have power. They have the power of evil. So bottom line is, <laughs> you go out and you try to face these guys on your own. You ever read that story in Acts 19 about the sons of Sceva or Seva, you know? where they went out and tried to start throwing out demons, and the evil spirit said to him, Hey, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And rips off their clothes and beats them to a pulp and chases them out. <laughs> you don't want to be messing with demons because they are far more powerful than you are. But once again, John tells us, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I send you out not on your own power, 
I send you out, yes, as lambs in the midst of, of wolves. But the reason it's lambs is because I want you to be absolutely certain that you don't have any power. Because if you try to use your own power, you're going to be destroyed. Satan is like a, a, a roaring lion walking around looking for people to devoid, to, to devour. You're no match for him. You're no match for a demon. You're no match for any of the powers of evil. So how is it that Jesus can give them authority over all the power of the enemy? I'm still not going to answer that question yet. We'll get to it in a moment because he goes on and says that nothing shall hurt you. Nothing. Now, again, don't take that literally. Don't take that physically because you'll be sorely disappointed because Jesus never promises us that there's not going to be suffering, that there's not going to be hardship. He sends these disciples out with virtually nothing, just the shirts on their back and the sandals on their feet and depending on him for all of their sustenance. So, I mean, Jesus says, you know, you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow me. There's hardship. The Son of Man has no place to even lay his hand. So he's not talking about physical well-being, health and wealth and prosperity. Brothers and sisters, what he's saying is that I can send you into the very heart of evil. And evil has no power over you. Because you're mine. You're protected. As long as I am using you, no matter where I send you, no matter how difficult the mission feels, no matter what is going on, if I send you, as long as I'm using you, nothing can stop the mission that I have sent you on because greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. Jesus is giving them power. It's divine power. It's the power of the Lord. It's the power of So let me answer this question, if I can. The nature of the power that that these men have. Again, there's two choices. Either they are sent out exercising, casting out demons as Jesus and the the apostles did. Now, I'm not going to argue with you if if you think that's what they're doing. Because the scripture is not clear. It, It is not definitive. And especially because Jesus did not commission them to do so. So I think that the power that these disciples have just seen exercised over the power of of evil is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the most essential point that I can make this morning because that is where our power is. That is where we are going to change the world. That is how we confront evil all around us. It is not in some kind of a, of, of a political sense or an organizational sense or a governmental sense or an ideological sense. It is with the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is where our power is. That is why we have authority over all the power of the enemy. He has no claim on us. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. We belong to our Lord. And as long as we are on his mission, that the devil cannot do anything to stop us. Oh, he can harass us. He can make it miserable for you. He can try to disillusion you. He can attack you and he can attack your family. If you don't believe me, ask anyone who works here or in the school. Because every single one of them are being attacked daily. By the enemy. But he can't stop us. He can't prevent us. 
from being about the work that our Lord has commissioned us to do, which is to go into that darkness and find his lambs and save them and see another lightning bolt come flying out of the sky and Satan defeated once again. Well, he's going to make that clear in what he says in our last verse. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Wow, that's, that's, that's odd, isn't it? Okay, here we have this, this powerful work that's going on. And then Jesus uses a word like nevertheless. Nevertheless means, wait a minute, let's stop and put this into a different perspective. Okay? It means there's a paradox here that you might not have picked up. Nevertheless... He says, even though you have this amazing authority to combat anything that evil can throw at you, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't find your joy in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Now, very important, brothers and sisters, what Jesus is telling us here. That's why I say this is just an epic passage. He's telling us, yes, it's a paradox. Yes, you were thrown into the presence of evil. Yes, I am leaving you in the sewer. Yes, I am sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. Yes, there are scorpions and serpents out there. And it's going to be a fight to the death. And they're going to fight you tooth and nail. And they're going to fight dirty. But don't look at it too long. Don't, don't, don't get sucked into the evil. Because that's not where your joy is. I was in Haiti one time. It's going way back, 2009. And um, Ashley was with me. It was just the two of us. I was teaching a seminar in Pinyon to the local uh, pastors and lay pastors there. And Pastor Jeff, they picked us up at the airport in Port-au-Prince, and we're driving up uh, towards uh, Pinyon. We're a couple of hours out of town. And it, Pastor Jeff, they loves to do this to me. Um, he, he, you know, he, he kind of turns over and says, um, I did tell you that, there's a revival in Hinch, didn't I? And I said, no, you didn't tell me there's a a revival. He says, well, we're going to stop there. I did tell you that you're preaching, didn't I? Uh, I, No, you didn't. I mean, this is the, he's done this multiple times to me. That's why I keep threatening that I'm going to do it to him here. Um, But nonetheless, we stopped in Hinch, which is where our thrift store is. And it was a decidedly charismatic church. In fact, I would have to say it's the most charismatic church that I've ever been in in my life. Um, it was the most bizarre time of music. I might even call it praise. There was a spirit in that place, and I don't think it was the spirit of the Lord. But it was chaos, people writhing on the floor, people running around screaming at the top of their lungs. There was a man over in the corner with his face towards the corner shouting hallelujah at the top of his lungs for 30 straight minutes until he lost his voice. This craziness was going on, and then they were supposed to preach. Now, as is often the case, I've seen it in Africa, in Central America, South America, as is often the case, one sermon's not enough. Either they're going to want the one pastor to preach more than one sermon, or they'll have multiple pastors. On this particular occasion, there were three pastors there. I was the third. The other two were Haitian, and they preached first. And so, as he often did, Pastor Jeff, they would whisper in my ear, translate what they were talking about. And in both of their messages, I can't tell you how many times I heard the word Satan, Satan. In fact, the messages were all about Satan, all about the devil. I I didn't hear the word Jesus. I didn't hear the word Christ. 
I didn't hear the word cross. I didn't hear atonement. I didn't hear salvation. I didn't hear redemption. I didn't even hear the word God. But I heard all about the devil and how we're here to stomp out and to step on and to tread upon the devil. You see, that's an unhealthy uh, uh, approach. You know, the devil is important. We need to understand. We need to understand his power. We don't want to take him lightly. We need to realize that we are engaged with spiritual warfare day in and day out. But don't give him more power than he has. He's a creature, and as all creatures, he is subject to the sovereignty and the power of God. The power that we wield, because it's God's power, is so much greater than his power, there's nothing he can do about it unless God ordains and gives him the ability to do it, as we read in the book of Job. So therefore, Jesus is saying, listen, your your joy is not going to be found in the fight. Be happy, be joyful, wonderful. All of the demonic forces and the greatest power that the enemy can put forward, you have the, 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 they're subject to you, but don't look to that to find your joy. Because if you do, it means you've lost your first love. It means that you've, you've lost sight of why you're here. You, you've, you, you've forgotten. I've sent you out into my, into my field Not just to fight evil. Evil's going to fight you no matter what you do. I've sent you out to find my lambs and to bring them into the fold. I've sent you out in the process of salvation. There is no salvation, brothers and sisters, in spiritual warfare. You realize that. I'm not saying people don't get saved as a result. You know, we have that gathering demoniac. But for the person doing the fighting, there's no salvation. Calvin uses the example of Judas Iscariot. He probably cast out lots of demons in, in, in his training before he became known that he was a, de- a devil himself. But he wasn't saved. You're not going to get saved by the degree of fighting that you do against evil. Your salvation is in Christ. Your salvation, the joy that you have, is in heaven. You know, when I think about things like this, I think about that church in Ephesus. I don't have time to go into it too much, but that church in Ephesus was very much the same kind of church. If you remember, when Jesus was talking to them and uh, in Revelation, in the, in the seven churches, when he singled Ephesus out, it was the first church, and this is what he said. He said, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, the church at Ephesus was under fire. They were constantly being battered down. Ephesus was a wicked, evil place. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there in Ephesus. The temple to Diana or Artemis in the Greek. And people would come from all over to buy idols and to to engage in both male and female prostitution and orgies and feast days. And it was a place of wickedness and demonic activity. And they wanted the church to be there. And what made things worse is when Paul started sharing the gospel in Ephesus, they stopped buying idols. And hurt the, the finances of the people there. And so they're, they're, they're fighting at the door constantly. 
But the way I see the church at Ephesus is almost like they're in a fort, you know, one of those old castles, and there's this parapet that goes all around, and then all the guys are up there fighting the barbarian hordes that are trying to break down the castle doors, and they never turn around to notice that the, men, the, the women and children that they're trying to save are dying of starvation. Brothers and sisters, that's so easy for a church to fall into. We become fighters and warriors. Yeah, we want to be fighters and warriors, but let's not forget the reason we are here. The reason we are here is to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the way we're going to change the world. And if the world is not going to be changed by the preaching of the gospel, then it's not us that's not changing it. It's the Holy Spirit. But that's our calling, and that's what we're supposed to do. Jesus says, don't get all excited because you have power over evil, but rather rejoice. Find your great joy in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Now, what this means is it's stated different, play, different ways in Scripture. It means that there is a list of names. Once again, grammar is important. Because what Jesus says, rejoice that your names have been written. Perfect tense, passive voice. All right? I mean, somebody else did the writing of your names. Okay, you didn't do it. You had nothing to do with that, actually. You're totally passive in this. There are names in heaven. Sometimes it's called Jeremiah. Looks, it says it this way. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Daniel puts it this way. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Revelation talks about it this way. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Or in a negative sense, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This underlines, brothers and sisters, the absolute sovereignty of God in election. You do not write your name in that book. No matter how good you are or what you do, this is God's book. This is his harvest. These are his lambs. This is his fold. And he sends us out as workers into that darkness to search and rescue and let his Holy Spirit do the rest. Because only the Holy Spirit can actually make a person a son or daughter of peace. Well, that's what I consider to be, I think, one of the more important passages that tells us as a church how we, and individuals, how we are to confront evil. Kay and I were watching a documentary just the other night, and a well-meaning pastor uh, had put it together, and he was lambasting the church because of the evil that was apparent all around us, and he was uh, accusing most pastors in the church of sticking their head in the sand of creating a bubble around their churches, climbing into their ivory towers and having absolutely nothing to do with it. And he, he, he made the statement, and I would agree with him, that any pastor who's worth his salt, any pastor who does not confront evil, and I'm going to expand it. I'm not going to say any pastor. I'm going to say any church or any Christian who does not confront evil is not has abrogated their calling. They're not responding to what God has called us to. Every single one of us is required to draw a scriptural line in the sand and say this far and no farther. I'm sorry, you cross that line, you decide that you want to say that there's as many genders as you want to make up, that is not biblical, that is not God's plan, it is wrong, and if it's wrong and opposed to God's will, it is evil. Not to mention stupid. 
But every single one of us needs to be prepared to, to be involved with the fight against evil. But then he said something that I just positive, I cringed to my very essence of my being when he said that. He says, you know, there's all those pastors out there and all they want to do is share the gospel. They don't understand that that's not going to change things. They've got to get involved politically. You need to be involved with organizations. You need to be out there stomping the feet. Get in the face of these people and oppose them. Oh, my goodness gracious. Is that so wrong? When did Jesus become politically involved, folks? You, you, you give me one instance. The closest he came was when he held up that denarii and said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and everything else is God's. Okay? Jesus did not have a political, an organizational, a government, or an ideological answer to the problem of evil. He had one answer, the same authority that he has given the church to overwhelm anything that the devil has to offer, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So no one can tell me that as a pastor I have abrogated my calling if all I want to do is change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only thing that's going to change the world. Nothing else. I mean, get involved with politics if you want to. I'm not going to stop you. I think Christians ought to get involved in every single aspect of society that they can. But don't think that you're going to save the world through that. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the ability to do that. So therefore we as Christians. Have a winning formula. And that is to put on the armor of Christ. To go out into the darkness. Fearlessly brothers and sisters. Fearlessly. Knowing that the power that is within you. Is greater than the power that is in the world. And to take the only thing that can actually change a heart which is the gospel of Jesus. I'll leave you with this. Jesus tells us in this passage, Paul writing to those same Ephesians, those same Ephesians that he's writing to, or Jesus says, you've lost your first love. It's not that they had not been told. Because Paul writes this in Ephesus, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak.
That's why, brothers and sisters, if we want to combat the evil of this world, we do it with our eyes ever heavenward. Amen? Let's pray. Well, our dear Lord, we thank you for the instruction you give us. We recognize that we are involved in a fight that's much bigger than we are. Oh, and yes, some of us put our head in the sand and act like it's not there. Some of us run from it. Some of us don't like the fact that abject evil is pitted against us. But Lord, I pray that as a church, we would answer the calling that you have put before us, not only in our school, but in our church, in our community, and in the world, to be those who, even though they fight evil day in and day out, we keep our eyes heavenward. We know where our joy is. We know where salvation is. We know where victory is. It's not in this world. It's not in anything of this world. It is in you and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may, Lord, we see that gospel spread throughout this land. If you would so bless us as to give us revival one more time and call this fallen people back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.